Hello, my friends, and welcome to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn Seeper. It is amazing to have you here today. Uh, you have picked a great day to drop in because this is a recording um, of a conversation I had with one of my favorite teachers, thinkers, authors, writers, uh, Dr. Alexander Shia. He wrote a book called Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation. And I got to tell you, uh, he has a way of looking at the four Gospels of the New Testament in a way that I never have before. Um, just blew my mind the first time I heard this man speak. And um, I recently picked up his book. I'm about halfway through it. And just incredible, incredible stuff. Do yourself a favor, drop by Amazon, wherever, and find this book. Um, it is fantastic. Um, but he will introduce himself a little bit in the episode. I will talk a little bit about how I got to know him and how I heard of him and all that different kind of stuff. And uh, just a shout out to Dr. Shia. Um, he was extremely gracious in this interview. Um, this was only the second time I sat down with somebody uh, to interview them and ask them questions. And I'm still trying to figure out how to do that well, because it's really weird. Like I always thought, well, you just sit down and have a conversation and record it. It's like not rocket science, right? But when somebody wrote a book, I try to read a good portion of the book beforehand. I have some questions to ask them. And uh, then try to be mindful that even though it's just me and the person talking and nobody's in the room, there will be other people who are listening to this. So I try to think about where they're at in their life, the questions they might have for the person, and try to consider all of those different things as I talk to the person and ask them questions. And then I don't want to talk too much, right? Because we want to give the person a chance to talk, but I don't want to talk too little because um, I should be there somehow directing the conversation. So it's, just, it's very, very tricky. I'm still learning how to do it. But he was so uh, gracious in all of that. And um, I think we had a really good conversation. I came away with a whole lot. I know that you will too. So um, again, this is my conversation with Dr. Alexander Shia. And this is episode number eight of the What If Project podcast. Enjoy it. And I'll talk to you soon. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What If Project podcast. Uh, my name is Glenn Sieper, and it is an incredible day to have you here today. Uh, let me tell you, you have chosen the right day to drop by because we are all in for an amazing treat as I am sitting down with the one and only and one of my new favorite people, uh, Dr. Alexander Shia. Dr. Shia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. It's always an honor, and I'm just delighted to be asked. And Glad that we could get the time set aside to do this. Absolutely. It was a little bit of a, a struggle to make it work on both ends, but we did it. We did it. We did it. We did it. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm, far, I'm, I'm not leaving the planet, but later today, I'm leaving the country. <laughs> you are leaving the country for a, for a little <laughs> not, while, too, right? Not because of your podcast. He's like, I've had enough. <laughs> I'm <Yes>. out. <laughs> uh, so for our listeners, uh, just real quick, kind of give some context. I came across Dr. Shia's work on Rob Bell's podcast, which is called The Robcast, uh, probably about a year ago. And I became like absolutely obsessed with the stuff that he he shared. And as we're going to see, he has a really unique and I would say powerful way of talking about the four Gospels of the New Testament. So we're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And honestly, in my four years of Bible college and seemingly eternity and seminary, uh, I've literally never heard anything like it before. And uh, then I heard him speak on the Deconstructionist podcast and then had the opportunity to hear him speak live back at the Wild Goose Festival in July. And once I 
I saw him live and I saw him speaking about the Bible and just the passion on his face. Um, I really could not get enough. So Dr. Shai, I went out and I bought your book, Heart and Mind. Like as soon as I got cell service back from the, the festival, I stopped my car on Amazon and I ordered it and it was there uh, shortly after I got home. Uh, but I'm like three quarters of the way through and uh, it is fantastic. But before we dive into that, maybe you could just give us um, like a few moments to introduce yourself to our listeners. How would you describe your work? Who are you? What do you do? What makes you tick? All that fun kind of stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I, I probably have a little bit of an unusual uh, life story because I'm, mm. I'm first generation Lebanese. My mm. grandparents and parents came to this country. Um, I just two days ago was at Ellis Island and was moved to tears more than I ever imagined wow. uh, because they did come in that great immigration wave of the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and, and then for some reason, economic, they went to Birmingham, Alabama, and that's where I was born and raised. But in those days, it was a difficult experience to be uh, a Lebanese immigrant in the South uh, at a time where the KKK was bearing down on all immigrants as well as the black community. Uh, and I grew up Roman Catholic or Eastern Rite Roman Catholic in Birmingham, Alabama of Lebanese descent. So sort of a minority of a minority of a minority. Hmm. And I was given the name Alexander at birth, which was the name so designated by my family to be the next in the line of priest. I come from a about 14 generations of priests back in Lebanon, all named Alexander. Hmm. So I was raised uh, with the obligation to be a priest. And it sort of fit me because I had a spiritual bent and I was really involved in spirituality, psychology, religion. Uh, I negotiated with my father sort of like verbal arm wrestling hmm. uh, to go to college rather than go directly to seminary greatest gift of my life was I ended up at the University of Notre Dame in the early 1970s. Yep, don't count the years. <laughs> uh, and when, when I was there, what I discovered there in the theology department just totally spun my world. And my, all of my work really comes from those early seeds that I was given back in the, back at Notre Dame in the early 70s. So for me, what happened was is that as I grew up, my grandparents couldn't read or write, and, uh, but they would tell stories like other people would, would be reading fairy tales or folk tales. Or, um, my grandparents didn't have any of that information. What they had were the memorized stories from the Bible and from the Gospels. Mm. And they would chant them to me because in the Middle East, if something is sacred, you chant it, you sing it, you never say it. Hmm. To say something, to just simply read a text in the Middle East is uh, considered uh, to, uh, to uh, not honor it. Anyway, I, I really learned something. That I, I learned, a, uh, I don't know, a force, a reality that was underneath the words. The words are important, but there's also another reality there. Uh, and then I go to Notre Dame, and I'm learning, I'm, I'm in my theology work and I'm in scripture work and I'm learning all this information about the scriptures, but none of it, it was interesting, mm -hmm. but none of it really held my heart. Mm. It's like, I, I couldn't find something in it that in, in a time of trouble would really, uh, really give me comfort and strength. Yeah. And 
if as the book opens, I, I tell the story of how as a seven-year-old boy in Birmingham, Alabama, we stood outside of my grandmother's house after it had been firebombed by the KKK in uh, the late 50s. And the, the power of that story for me is not the horror of the bombing uh, and the tremendous loss that we all lost in losing the home. But uh, five days later, we were at a at Sunday dinner, which we were always at Sunday dinner together with my grandmother until I went to college. And that Sunday, we were sitting on card tables and folding chairs and um, and she said grace, as she always does. And then she stopped and she looked around the room and her glasses kind of went down her nose, down the bridge of her nose, and she looked over her glass around the room. She looked at every one of us. And then very quietly and very insistently, she said, no hate, no hate, no hate. Mm. And it was one of those moments where the many years of sitting on her lap and hearing the gospels chanted, it was like, where does such power and strength come from? Mm. And I know that I, I wanted, I wanted that reality in my life. Mm. So I, I had as much of a faith crisis as I've ever, ever had. And I, I, um, I, I didn't, I don't have the great faith crisis that many people do today. And I understand why, you, why they do. Yeah. But for me, it was at Notre Dame, I suddenly discovered that I couldn't find the gospel that I knew. Uh. And I was hearing about all the committees that wrote this and they wrote that and the arguments that they would have. And somehow I was beginning to, I mean, not somehow, I was beginning to distrust. It's like, where is the core beauty and truth of this text that, will still my critical mind. Not, not that I want to put, uh, it's like I always want to use my critical mind, but when the gospel gets challenged to the level that it's been challenged of late, um, it's very, very, very difficult. Yeah. Because you really, really begin to wonder, well, are there better stories of Jesus? The, you know, did, did, was there some critical wisdom that was repressed and covered over or, yeah, did we end up with these four Gospels because people were trading them like baseball cards? Kind of an old metaphor. Yeah, sure. Uh, but, but that was, it was like, it, I was really unsettled by what I discovered in my theology courses at Notre Dame. And I started to search. Hmm. Uh, I wanted a way that I could bring all the beautiful power of my critical mind back together to a devout heart. Hmm. And I didn't want a church or a community to ask me to check my brain or check my heart at the door. And it, it seems like, uh, for me, that's been my experience, is, is that uh, communities were either one or the other. They were either very devout, but I couldn't have a critical conversation. Yeah. Or I could have a very critical conversation. And if I, if I really showed my heart, it was like, oh, that's, that's kind of naive. It's like one end of the spectrum or the other. Yeah. Yeah. So then what happened for me is, well, there's, there's one more piece to the story at Notre Dame, and that is that there was this really wild, passionate, small male professor who came every spring to teach for two weeks in the theology department, and you had to be an upperclassman to get into his seminars. Huh. And 
his name was Joseph Campbell. This is before Joseph Campbell knew who Joseph Campbell was. Long, <laughs> long before he was sort of discovered. Sure. And I didn't, I mean, there, there was no, you know, his, his personality was just who he was, and he was just this wild, passionate, eloquent speaker. And what he taught me began to spin my world. Mm. Because his, his major premise was that every great world story, which is deeply true, has four parts to it. Mm. And he would then go through, and uh, he would go through all these books of the Bible, and he would show the four-part story. And he would show the four parts of the story inside of each gospel. Huh. But I kept thinking, is there something of his teaching which is a, reason, a, 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 a rational, logical reason why we ended up with these four gospel texts? Yeah. There's some connection between this idea that all great stories must be told in four parts and the four Christian gospels. And for some reason he never went there. He, he never went to combining the four texts into some, sort of a mega story. Huh. And, and I, so I started a surge in 1972. I started this search just on this intuition that there was some connection between his idea about the four story, the four parts to the great story and the reason that we ended up with the four Gospels. One of the things that helped me that I don't think Campbell ever knew is that um, early Christianity for the first 500 years always read the Gospels in an identifiable sequence. Hmm. And the sequence is not quite the sequence we have in the Bible. But I was like, okay, if, if there's a key to the four texts as part of one story, then the key may be found in this ancient sequence because they they didn't think of them as four separate texts. And they never used the word gospel plural. Hmm. It was just the gospel in four accounts. Hmm. And it was it, as you read these old texts, you really get the sense that um, they saw this as as an integral whole. And of course, and it's true that we can look at the text as the four life stories of Jesus. And sure. this, that, nothing I'm saying um, is going to counter that. But the early church really treated them as, in my mind, they saw them as, as some sort of a continuous story. Hmm. Although at the level of history, that doesn't make sense. Hmm. So it's like, how, how could this work? How could, how could these four... Um, fit together and I you know it's like I felt like a long time like Cinderella's uh, stepsisters I was trying to make I was trying to force it I was trying to force the foot into the shoe it's yeah like, I'm gonna get the goal <laughs> gonna make this work <laughs> gonna make this work and I, I hope I had enough integrity it's like after a while we're like back off now it's like you've got to force it this isn't it yet. yeah so I I kept praying mm. and I kept doing research and then the, the final piece of a long journey of, of putting this together, God leading me to put this together, was a book that was published in, in uh, the year 1999. Hmm. And it was, the author is the Reverend Robin Griffith 
Jones, who's an Anglican scripture scholar at Oxford. And he wrote this book called The Four Witnesses. And I was leaving to go on sabbatical. And my friend who worked in a bookstore literally came driving up, parking the car in front of my car so I couldn't drive off, jumps out of the car, hands me this book and says, you know, have a good sabbatical. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, you know, the last thing I really need, Bob, is another book. That's right. I got enough of that. (laughs) I got a car full of stuff. I got out of the car put the book on the driver's seat and got back in and sat on it. <laughs> so a couple of months go by and I'm feeling like, you know, I've, I've got to read at least some of this book and write Bob a, a very gracious note of, of thanks for his generosity. And I'd been out hiking on this day and it was a, a very long hike. And I got home that night and my, my body was tired, but my brain wasn't. Mm. All right. Great moment to read a book in Christology. This will do it. Absolutely. <laughs> so I sat down and I opened this book. And Glenn, the hair on the back of my head, mm. I mean, it was one of those, it was like this electrical charge. So much so that I didn't sleep for two days. Wow. Um, because what Robin Griffith has done with his book is he summarizes the history of the community at the point that we believe the gospel was revealed to them mm. and he summarizes their dilemma. Mm. And then he, in his book goes on to talk about the names of Jesus in relationship to what they were wrestling with. I'm looking at it as a spiritual director and someone who knows the spiritual classics I'm also looking at it as a clinical psychologist trained in trauma work. Mm. And I'm looking at it with 35 years of hermeneutics and the rigor of all of that. And the final piece is I'm looking at it going back to the ancient Christians reading the gospel in a sequence. Yeah. And there it was. And it's like as the door flew open, the, the roof flew off, uh, suddenly the text changed. It's this, it were the same words, mm. but an entirely different impact. It's awesome. And what I saw that night, and have spent now 18 years trying to, to study it and refine it and say it in ways that people can perhaps use it, mm. is that the text of Matthew is the entire text of Matthew is about the question of how we face change. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways I like to say it is, is that the evangelist, whoever the evangelist was, uh, who this text was inspired or revealed to, um, was gathering together all the life stories and teachings of Jesus about how you face change. Mm-hmm. And that question of how, through the power of Jesus the Christ, you face change, becomes the, the, becomes the thread, the glue underneath this text. Hmm. And that's Campbell's first part of the story. The first part of the story is you, you hear the summons to a new journey. Hmm. And that's and part of the human journey, right? It's part of the human journey. Yeah. I mean, Cam- Campbell's has got all these volumes. He goes over in the, all the world's 
great stories, mythologies, mm. and shows this same pattern. And he, and he keeps saying, he keeps te- teaching us, don't get caught by the words. Look at the pattern. It's, the words are going to be different. The story is going to be different. But it's this pattern that is so deep in every human. Yeah. And that we instinctively know that if these four parts aren't there, we don't feel satisfied when we get to the end of the story. And his work has been so important that most movie script writers, Broadway play people, everybody has made their way to Campbell to learn about the, the, the underneath pattern that has to be there to satisfy the human heart. Hmm. Uh, so this, en- yeah, this entry into change, is that, um, is that like major life change? Is it, um, could it be like as simple as the change of a job? Could it be as big as a change of um, like life in terms of like moving away from an addiction, like that kind of thing? Is it like, what would be the change that we would be looking at in the gospel? Yeah, I'm sitting here nodding my head vigorously, yes, and realizing your readers can't see it. <laughs> That's yeah. right. <laughs> can't see that. Um, yes, yes, and yes. It's, okay. it's everything from the most dramatic change uh, um, down to the, the most simple changes in our mm-hmm. life. They, they all, I mean, they, they have a different emotional intellectual impact on us, but the underneath structure of change is change. Sure. Got it. I think, uh, I think that's helpful because I think, you know, you were talking before we started recording that there's, you know, I know this is a relatively new podcast. I don't really know my listeners yet, but I have a general idea of the audience that's out there. And I think the larger part of the audience is probably in the midst of some kind of a change. I know there's no specific people who have lost loved ones recently. They're learning how to cope without them. Uh, there's other people who have migrated jobs. They're starting something completely new that they've never done before. Um, other people like myself have uprooted their family and moved to another part of the country. So there's a lot of change out there. So I think just that, that piece right away is going to resonate with people um, as we jump in from there. So uh, I'll let you continue from there. But Matthew's about change, you said, right? Right. Matthew, okay. So I think, I think, um, uh, I think let, let's do sort of the over, uh, overview of the map. Yeah, please. Then we'll come back and... and, and talk about this more deeply um so campbell would talk about that the second part of the journey is after you hear the summons to this uh to and and journey is really a name for for transformation and growth Mm. but when you hear the summons to this the next place you go is not very comfortable it's it's kind of wild and woolly campbell talks about it's the place of tremendous trial and obstacles and so uh, the, the text that the early church so rightfully determined for this part of the journey is uh, the Gospel of Mark, or what I call how we move through times of great suffering, mm. great trials, great suffering. Uh, the next part of the journey that Campbell would describe is that then you come into the gift, or he used the word boon or gift, I use the word awareness or insight, uh, sort of a perhaps a visionary experience, perhaps some sort of an ecstatic experience, perhaps experience of tremendous deep peace. Um, and for this experience, uh, the early church chose the Gospel of John. Hmm. The question of how do we receive joy and know the meaning of joy? It's not just how we receive it, but also that 
that the experience has meaning for us in our life. And the fourth part of Campbell's uh, description uh, was that now you've, you've begun the journey, you've endured the trials and the obstacles, you've received the gift or the new awareness. And he would say, now you've got to come back to everyday life or you've got to come back to community and you've got to do something. Mm. And this is so important because um, the, the third part of the journey, getting the awareness, is, it's a really critical piece. But unless you do something with it, it really yeah. isn't much use. Mm. And uh, so the early church discerned the text of Luke Acts mm. as this fourth part of the journey in terms of coming back and in, in my language, how do we mature in service? Mm. Uh, service to our God, service to each other, service to self. Mm. So, so there it was that as I was reading Robin Griffith Jones and his description of the historical community at the point the gospel came to them, they were dealing with these questions. Matthew's community, Antioch, was dealing with the question of how do we face a moment of tremendous change? Hmm. And Mark's community in Rome was facing execution. And how do we move through a time of, of great suffering? Hmm. John's community in Ephesus was facing a moment of ecstasy and that ecstasy was being used to break the community apart rather than bring it together. And again, the, the, the text of John. And then finally, Luke's text, um, written from Antioch, much like the letters of Paul, as a, a book to be taken around to all the emerging Christian communities in the Mediterranean because we were all facing the same question at this point. Mm. Uh, we, we, we had now come out of our mother Judaism and we had to stand before the emperor as illegals. Hmm. And Luke's text was, what's going to be the way that we're going to offer the good news? Hmm. Uh, we are not going to offer the good news with a sword. We're going to offer the good news uh, with the strength of our tongue and the grace of our heart. Hmm. But we're going to offer it uh, realizing that this is going to be a long, slow process of heart by heart by heart by heart by heart by heart by heart. Um, we're not going to try to transform the Roman Empire. We're not going to try to hit a home run. Uh, we're going to do the Luke's whole text is about what are you doing right now? What yeah. small actions can you do right now to touch another heart? Mm. Just touch one heart, turn one heart. And, and the, the, the practice of Luke over 300 years, 300 years, changed the value system of the Roman Empire so that the Roman Empire could no longer support the value system of the emperor. Huh. It, we, we changed it from within without a physical fight. Anyway, so, so, there, so there we have it. And th there we have the ancient church reading sequence. Yeah. We have now why they placed Matthew first, because the text of Matthew is Jesus is teaching us about how to face change. Why did they place Mark second? Because 
It's Jesus' teaching about how to move through the valley of the shadow of death by the power of the resurrection. Mm. And place John third because John's the text of receiving the new gift, the new insight, the new awareness. And placed Luke fourth, not third. I mean, John was third and Luke was fourth. Yeah. But because um, the fourth part is service, 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 service. Yeah. Wow. Um, I love the one piece that you said that um, the important piece is once we move beyond that third piece where there's a, perhaps the gift or the revelation, uh, going into that fourth piece of actually doing something with it is the key. Because so often, I mean, even like in school and stuff, like in seminary and even in church, like you hear a sermon, a message or a teaching and you, you theorize about it all day and you think about all these wonderful things that you've learned and you know very rarely sometimes we don't take it to the next level and actually do something with it in our lives to better our family our community or ourselves or whatever so that's a that's a big piece yeah yeah just Um, as as a small distraction there um i've just finished my next book which is about returning from community returning from camino which is this pilgrimage across spain sure um it's the same issue People think that the Camino ends when you get to some place in Spain. Yeah. That's, that's half the Camino. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the whole reason as a spiritual walk, the whole reason for doing the Camino is to have something in you awakened yeah. that, then you, that then come home from and begin to reshape your life. Hmm. And it's like if, if you don't come home and reshape your life, well, you had a nice walking holiday and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But, but sure. that's, the pilgrimage is not about over there somewhere. Pilgrimage is about, about really reshaping um, how you live, your value system, the way you serve, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's like a retreat. It's like going on a missions trip or something like, like a short-term missions trip. It's not necessarily just about what you do in that space, but it's about the change that experience, you experience inside that you bring home with you and uh, do something with. Yeah, That's, that's really good. Um, one I, of the things, think, yeah, go ahead, please. Well, I, I think that one of the things that we do not realize, we, we have not spoken enough of is is that early christianity was a whole new level of human family organization which the planet had not seen up to this point or if it had seen they died out and they didn't leave a record behind yeah but we do not have a pan tribal community before christianity in the first century Hmm. Uh, and diversity is our hallmark yeah we, we, we are the spiritual tradition that opened our doors to everyone and said, come. And that's radical folly. Yeah. And here we are with sort of 2,000 years later, and we're back at the same place. Mm. Um, and we just need to return to, this, to the practices of early Christianity to know how to resolve this. Yeah, that's really good. Um, one of the things that kind of piqued my interest while you were talking is, um, a little bit about the gospel of, of Mark, um, because you talked about how Mark is about uh, kind of facing the obstacles. It's about the, the storm that comes when you begin that journey of change. And it piqued my interest for two reasons, because number one, I think that's just something everybody can relate to is the storms and the different things that are going on in life. But the second thing is that uh, right now in the What If Project, one of the things that we're exploring is the book of Mark. Uh, mm. So from September through December, uh, we're kind of journeying through the book. I'm blogging through it a little bit, um, using your book as one of the bigger resources for it. Um, we have an online study group that's meeting, and we're doing uh, NT Wright's 
uh, mark for everyone. So we're kind of using that as a resource as well. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just spend a little bit of uh, time, maybe just taking us a little bit deeper into that context of Mark specifically, and maybe showing us a little bit about how understanding that context of what was going on in the world at the time, like with Nero's fire and all that kind of stuff, like how does that influence the way that we read the text and then kind of bring about um, that uh, propelling for change that you were talking about earlier? Okay, let, let me just sort of wade in here, and it's, uh, I love to talk about Mark, so you you yeah. got to sort, of, sort of put some parameters around it. Um, because Mark is the first gospel text ever composed, mm. and Mark creates a new art form which the world had never seen before. Yeah, There's nothing in literature in any other, in any other tradition mm. uh, uh, which is written in the way that, that the gospel of Mark is written. And the way I describe it is, You've got um, the the first eyewitness of Peter, yeah, who saw the who saw Jesus in the flesh and had all these tremendously powerful stories in Rome as the Bishop of Rome, mm. and then you have in Rome Paul uh, in house prison, and Paul is the person who didn't see the historical Jesus, mm. and Paul is the person who had the most powerful impact on the first century because, uh, and I know this from my own work uh, in organizational development, uh, if an organization, and I don't want to reduce Christianity to only an organization, but this might be helpful to understand, um, your organization is going to depend on your second and your third generation teacher or leader. Because the first generation teacher or leader around the charismatic founder um, are very poor teachers. And the problem is they have all the mixture of the personality and the way a person tells a story and the way they laugh and the way they eat, the way they walk and and, um, the discussions that they had, et cetera. It's all there and it's all jumbled up. Yeah. And if I try to tell you about that and about the power that this person had on me, mm. you're going to say, well, you know, Alexander, that's really nice. You were there. What does that have to do with me? Right. Sure. Yeah. That's the power of Paul. Paul uh-huh. comes along without having any of those stories and without having with his outer eyes seen any of that reality. Mm. And he has an internal experience of Jesus the Christ that reforms his life and gives him an immediate experience to say that all the stories that Peter and James and John and Mary Magdalene and whoever else told, told you about, those are stories in time that are eternal. Mm. And because they're eternal, you have as much access to them right now as they did. In yeah. fact, Paul would say you have more access. Mm. So, what Paul does is Paul in, infuses how Christianity is not a religion of time, that Christianity is a religion about how the eternal lives in time, mm. and that the gospel text should not be told as a time-bound history lesson, but rather you use, um, you use a moment in time to tell an eternal story. Mm. So, he would, he, because of his experience, he could take 
the historical eyewitness of the original ones and open it up in a way to help people walk into it right now. Mm. To know that it wasn't a story of 30 years ago or 40 years ago. It wasn't a story back in Palestine. That this is happening right here, right now, this moment. Mm. So when the first gospel is composed, you've got Peter and Paul in Rome uh, before both are killed. And so you've got the Roman community, the Christian Jewish community in Rome who are understanding because they've got the two uh, core fundaments of the early church right there. And they have the historical record from Peter and they have the eternal record from Paul. And they understand that a gospel story is not going to be is not going to be told as a historical story. It's going to be told as a as an eternal story, as a present moment here and now story. And so, therefore, the evangelist, whoever the evangelist Mark is, in Rome, takes the events from Palestine and puts them, situates them in the heart, in the streets of the Jewish Christian community in the midst of this mini Holocaust. Mm-hmm. having been condemned to die by Nero, falsely accused for having set the great city of Rome on fire. Yeah. So it's, it's um, so that now we can understand how Mark opens. Mm-hmm. The, the text of Mark opens with the story of John the Baptist. I like to call it a meditation on John the Baptist. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Christian Jewish community in Rome is waiting for a Roman soldier to come and knock on the door. And when that knock comes, they're going to have to answer the question, do you believe in the Christus, the Christ? And if you say yes, you and your family, down to your grandchildren, are going to be seized, taken to the Circus Maximus, and killed. Mm. Um, all of this is happening because the Roman Senate has turned against Nero, and Nero's got to have a scapegoat to save his own self. Mm. And his scapegoat ends up being the Jewish Christians. Mm. Well, they know that they are in a wilderness. They know that they are like into that desert uh, where, the, where their ancestors wandered for 40 years and died. Mm. They know that they are John the Baptist, who was horribly killed off of the whim of a drunken governor. Mm. And so this meditation on John the Baptist is, uh, this too is our story. Mm. This is what we are being asked to proclaim something uh, in this desert. And we, are, we also know that we are likely to not physically get out of this desert that the end of our the physical end of our lives is is the most likely result of this moment but there's another piece that undergirds all of mark which is um every one of these gospels is not a gospel about a story of resurrection at the end of the text the whole gospel is the practice of resurrection Mm. all of these gospels were written to baptize Christian communities who already had, hopefully, the experience of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in their hearts. And the gospel text 
He is saying, here's how you practice resurrection in the midst of this dilemma. And for the Roman Christians in, well, for the Jewish Christians in Rome, a, 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 a moment of, of extremists as they are really in a mini Holocaust. Hmm. And we know that, uh, that the, the power of the resurrection is holding this community because the, the little historical record that we have of how they died on the floor of the Circus Maximus, a horrible death, was that the Romans citizens, the Roman senators that came out to watch their death got bored because they came to see people scream and beg for their life. Mm. And it said that the Christians died with great serenity and nobility. Mm. I want to suggest that you can't do that. You can't play act knowing the resurrection in your heart. But when you know it, you can face such a horrible moment. Yeah. Because you know that this is not the end. Yeah. And you know that you're giving your life for something greater. Mm. Kind of like what your, your grandmother, when she was over that dinner, saying no, um, no revenge or no anger. Um, she got that. That was a deep-seated um, experience for her. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So, like, go further into Mark's text. And I think, it's the, the four, I think it's the fourth chapter where we have the first crossing of the sea. Yes. At night. Yeah. And uh, look, read that story through the extremists of the Christian community in Rome. Uh, first of all, the, the, the Sea of Galilee, um, we might better call that the Sea of Chaos. We might better call that the Sea of Terror. Um, the Jewish people saw the Sea of Galilee as a tomb. Uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands of Jews died in the storms that came up on that sea and they drowned. Hmm. Uh, no sailor or fisherman would ever go out on that sea at nighttime. It's utter folly. Hmm. Uh, what does Jesus do? Jesus puts <laughs> the disciples in the boat at night. Yeah. Can, you, can we hear the Jewish Christians in Rome? We're in a boat at night and yeah. now the storm has hit. Hmm. And just as this text says, and the waves are crashing, and the boat is going down. Mm. And, and where, um, where is Jesus? Sleeping. <laughs> in the back. In the back. Which is, which is the part of the boat that rocks the least. Sure. And then sleeping, and then the evangelist adds one more little detail, and his head is resting on a cushion. <laughs> well, I mean, how many of us can't relate to this yeah. in terms of, I'm in this horrible place, and where where the is my God? Yeah, sure. Wake up! I mean, hear hear Peter in this text cry out, "Wake up! Do something! We're going down. Yeah, the ship is going down. The community is going down. The church is going down. The world is going down. Wake up!" Mm. And and Jesus does wake up, and Jesus does still the storm. And I would suggest to you that uh, the greater storm that Jesus is trying to still is the inner storm. Mm. And then says to the disciples and to us, where's your faith? Mm. Where's your faith? Don't you know I'm here? Mm. Don't you know that there is something in this storm 
which is for your growth. Mm. Where's your faith? So there, there are four crossings in Mark, and Jesus gets increasingly impatient with the disciples who want to be taken out of the storm. Yeah. But the truth of the second path, the truth of the second great part of the journey is we have to go into the storm. And this is this, I mean, if I had, were going to preach to most Christian communities today or to any of us, stop praying to get out of the storm, yeah. go into it. The Christ is here with us. There is something in this storm which is for our further holiness. Yeah. Um, there is something in the storm which is about not just rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. Mm. There's something in the storm right now which is about taking all the furniture out of the room. There's something in the storm about bringing us back to I don't know. There's mm. something in the storm which is about holy uncertainty. Because when you're in this part of the journey with God, God does not want you to know about tradition, does not want you to affirm yesterday. God doesn't want you to argue against tradition, but God wants to say, in this moment, I have to stand before you not knowing. Teach me deeper. Yeah. Wow. So it seems like, um, just from what you're backtracking a little bit, that... um, the apostle Paul is the one who really taught us to read the gospel story in this way, right? Because sometimes you hear the stories of old. And like you said, you think, well, I wasn't there. You were there. And that's really great for you. But what about me? But Paul, like you said, wasn't there. And so he's probably the one that we can relate to the most in that sense, because he showed us how to bring the gospel story forward into the present time and show it as an eternal, um, an eternal peace. And so would you say that like a, a good way then to read um, the gospel stories is to do like what these readers of Mark, for instance, were doing that maybe when they read or chanted the story of the storm that in their mind, they were thinking of Nero. They were thinking of that knock on the door. They were thinking of, um, you know, this is our boat. Is Jesus here with us in our boat? Is he sleeping in our boat? Like, is that a, a proper way for us to read the text today? To bring our problems to I would it. Say a, a little bit more uh, immediate, Glenn. Yeah, I don't think for the first hearers of this text that they needed any translation. Mm. Um, they knew because both Peter and Paul were there, and they had been formed in hearing the story of Jesus, not as historical, but as present moment here and now. Mm. And they certainly didn't need anyone to, to tell them that they were in the boat at night uh, on the Sea of Terror. Yeah. Uh, wondering where their God was. Sure. The, the question for us is, can, can we um, open these texts up? And it's why I like to widen out the name of Galilee mm. to the Sea of Terror. Where in your life right now? Where in the world? Where in your life right now are, are you in the Sea of Terror? Where in your life right now do you feel like you're going down? Yeah. Do you feel like your country is going down? Do you feel like the planet is going down? Mm. Um, and that this, that the text of Mark is about teaching us, uh, first to have hope, but then to move beyond hope to trust and to move beyond trust to knowing Mm. hope is a developmental virtue. It's not a place to stop. It's a place to start. Mm. And by the time we get to Luke's text, we'll see how hope has transitioned and grown into knowing, Mm. which is which is Mary's place in, in the Lucan text is 
you know, in the midst of all the horrible stuff that's going on right now, Mary knows the promise of God. And because she knows the promise of God, her heart can stay more even. Sure. She, she knows that God's going to win the victory if she just does her small part. Hmm. Anyway. But it's, it's this journey that we make through the Gospels. And uh, so, so much of Mark is about our learning to have hope and some sense of trust. Then hmm. God will bring us to the grace of knowing in God's time. Sure. Oh. And and I, I well I could go on and on, but um, <laughs> I, I love that uh, uh, Psalm twenty two um, is on the lips of Jesus as Jesus is dying in the text of, of Mark, also in the text of Matthew, but primarily in the text of Mark. And, and that we need to reinterpret Psalm 22, not reinterpret, but we need to understand that Psalm 22 in the first century of Judaism, and for a couple of hundred years before that, was the prayer that every devout Jew wanted to have on their lips as they died. Uh, and that, that so that, that Jesus in Mark is not praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus in Mark is praying the first line of Psalm 22. And the evangelist didn't need, for, for a Jewish community uh, that was becoming Christian, didn't need to put the entire text of Psalm 22 in the gospel any more than if we heard a Christian dying today saying, Our Father who art in heaven. Hmm. We know the rest of the prayer. And if you read the entirety of Psalm 22, it moves through abandonment and despair and agony. Hmm to praise and equanimity and glory for a God who is and who always saves. Mm. So if you're going to read, you know, if you're going to read that beautiful text, powerful text of Jesus on the cross in Mark, read the entirety of Psalm 22 and know that Jesus on the cross in Mark is not dying in agony. Jesus on the cross of Mark is dying in the nobility of suffering. Mm in the same way that the early Christians are going to die at the Circus Maximus or being asked to access that same nobility of suffering. Uh, that though, yes, in this moment I am being tormented, that is not the deepest truth. Yeah. The truth under this, underneath this is love and grace and righteousness and justice. And though I cannot see it now, it will be. That is the truth of all time. So it's just, it, it changes Mark from this, uh, from a, a gospel that we might look at and go, our, our human God dies feeling abandoned. Uh, our, our human God knows the experience of abandonment, not as an ending place, but as a journey place. Uh, What's so powerful about that Psalm 22 is, because it starts with all the emotions that we often feel when we're, in a, when we're in a time of great struggle and pain. We do feel despair. We do feel abandonment. We do feel, read the text about, about the sharp teeth of the gnawing dogs. Yeah. And that's exactly how the early Christians were dying at the Circus Maximus. They were being eaten by dogs. Uh, uh. But please, please, please read the beauty of the last three stanzas of Psalm 22. Uh. So you saying that Mark's readers would have understood that without having, having it right in front of them. They would have known that, well, Jesus is saying this on the cross, but he's really referring to the uh, entirety of the psalm, not just this one piece. 
Right, because yeah. it was standard Jewish practice to know Psalm 22 by heart hmm. and to pray your whole life that you might pray it as you die. Oh. And I probably, I'm going to make a very educated guess here, but hmm. probably these first Christian martyrs dying at the Circus Maximus in Rome in 64, 65 are praying Psalm 22. Hmm. Why do you think, why would Mark only put, why would he choose to put just that one line in there as opposed to um, maybe a larger chunk of the psalm? Is um, it for, is it just for the sake of his narrative, the way that he's telling the story? Um, just curious, that just popped into my mind while you were talking. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, Mark, Mark's text is utterly brief and stark. Yeah, I just I love that, that it has this immediacy because of the starkness. Yeah, um, I simply think that it was uh, it was unnecessary because it, the prayer was so well known. Uh, just for me, it's just as if someone was dying today, and you hear "Our Father who art in heaven." Yeah, um, it just you know, you're the, for for the Jewish ear of that day, they would just immediately. Uh, roll off the rest of the psalm in their heart. Hmm. Hmm. So, given the context of their situation, are they are they reading? Are they seeing every story that Mark puts through the lens of what they're going through with this fire? And is Mark is Mark purposely crafting his story so that the people will be able to make that parallel very easy for them? And that's one of the things I'm wondering as I as I read your book and as I'm reading Mark now as we're blogging through it, like. I'm trying to think of, you know, if I came across a certain story in Mark, whether it's a healing story or the um, story about the demonic, you know, those kind of things are the trying to place myself in their shoes, wondering how they're reading these particular texts and if it has a deeper meaning for them. This is my, this is my premise. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I don't know that there's any way to absolutely prove one way or the other. Mm. Um, but when I find myself in the storm in my life yeah. and I turn to the text of Mark, I find that the sequence of the stories and the way that they're told um, helps, helps still the terror of my heart. Yeah. Sure. And I therefore have a tend I, I tend to believe that, uh, that the, the Jewish Christian community in Rome would have. Yeah. And I, I, you know, one of the one of the things that I, I also open up in the book is how we've we've not understood because we've not understood our Jewish mother enough. We've not understood how in the text of Mark the evangelist uses water, uh, and that um, water in Mark, not every association of water in the Gospels, but water in Mark uh, is the place of our deepest anxiety. Uh-huh. The Jewish people of the first century saw this line of water from the springs of Caesarea Philippi to the Sea of Galilee to the Jordan River to the Red to the Dead Sea um, as a line of troubling water and potentially the place where the demons were. Yeah. So why does Mark make water so prominent? Because uh, you know, the Jewish Christians of Rome don't need to be. <laughs> they don't need to be told about how how flowing water, yeah, flowing water is a problem. Yeah, hmm. 
and why flowing water? Because when the great flood happened, uh, we, we tend to know that the vault over the heavens opened. But if you read the text closely, right. the vault underneath the earth also opened and the water came from both directions and right. wiped everything away. So when Jews see flowing water in that day, they go, well, is the vault under the earth? Is it secure? Why, where is, is there air coming in? Is there, is there a hole in the, uh, what, what's creating this flowing? Hmm. So they uh, we read the, the Jewish scriptures. They, they pray often for still water, hmm. not flowing water. Yeah. Like the Psalms. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, Mark can use flowing water and all of this flowing water through Israel and brings it and puts it in his gospel text because they, because Jewish Christians know they're being invited to go down into the place of their deepest anxiety. That they, they are in, uh, they, they are in a very wild and treacherous outer place for themselves. Mm. Wow. And this is such a, a unique way to, I feel like it's almost like a wrestling match with my brain because, yeah. uh, you know, having gone through um, seminary and Bible college and stuff and, you know, just you learn to read the Gospels a certain way. And when you, you bring all this context into each, each one of the different Gospels and try, you, it just brings so much more life to it. Um, and it's just such an interesting way to read it. Um, going forward, like, what would you, what would you say is a, is a good way for people to maybe become stronger, deeper readers of the gospels. Like, um, you know, a lot of my listeners are going to open up their Bible in the morning and they're going to have their morning devotion, so to speak. And they're going to, you know, take away something and they're going to bring it with them in their day. Um, and that's fine. But like, what's, what do you think is a, maybe a, a more intentional way that we could read the gospels given this journey that you, you shared with us? Like, how can we bring that into our everyday lives? Uh, great question, Glenn. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to just uh, be so self-serving as to uh, invite people to pick up um, heart and mind. Sure. Uh, you know, it, it's what this work has done has given um, a depth to every word in the text. And I know people will say, can I just go read the text and get this? <laughs> I don't know that you can't. Yeah, um, be, because you, you need to understand the meta story that's going on on underneath. Yeah, but I think that if you were to take heart and mind um, and use a little bit of it, and then sit in prayer with the text, the text, yeah. the text in you will begin to open up in a new way. That's good. That's good. And you, uh, you have a nice in each chapter. You have a nice section just to let my listeners know that there's. Yeah, you open up each chapter with the background of the of that particular gospel, and I found that particularly helpful in just preparing for some of the blog posts from Mark and stuff because I've I probably read that opening section four or five times, and then when I I go and I read a section of Mark, I try to read it like I said earlier with that framework in my mind, and it does bring a much different light to the text. So um, I think we might do a giveaway of some sort with heart and mind. So we might try to get it right. in hands. Yeah, I think that would be a lot of fun. Great. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but hey, we're just about out of time. This is about 12 o'clock. And um, I know you've got places to go as well. Um, you're going to Spain. So you have a, a pretty long trip coming up. Um, when is your new book coming out? Just so we can know and where we can go and find it. 
Um, the the newest book is yeah. Returning from Camino. Okay, and that came out in May. It's out already. Okay, it's out. It's out already. Yeah. Um, sadly, my hope had been that I would be able to get the Advent Christmas book done this year. Yeah. Um, it looks like that's probably going to not come out until about this time next year. Okay. Um, but the 13 days of Christmas as uh, the, the great Christmas story, um, as the story of growth and transformation in Christ. That'll be great. Oh, we'll look for that next year for sure. Thank, thank you, Glenn. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Shia, thank I, you. For, yeah. I don't know when you might so choose to, uh, to air this whenever is fine, but know that I will be taking your listeners and you with me as I walk across Spain. Uh, thank you so much. Especially in those places of great grace, I'll be praying grace to all of you. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate Your that, and, and we all do. Uh, Dr. Shai, thank you so much for your time. And um, maybe we'll have you back on to talk about that Christmas book next year. It's always an honor. Thanks, Glenn. Take care. Thank you so much, sir. Bye-bye. Man, that was fun, wasn't it? I just love that guy so much, uh, Dr. Alexander Shia. Um, just a great conversation, I think, just around uh, the four Gospels and how to read them, maybe think about them a little bit differently than we normally would, uh, you know, as something that's just more than just, you know, a record of Jesus's life. I mean, I don't know about you, but whenever I sit down to read the Gospels, um, in my mind, I'm like, all right, this is just a story that one of these four guys wrote down about Jesus um, from their perspective, and, you know, they wrote it down so that we would have it all throughout the course of history, and, and that's it. But I think what I love about Dr. Shai is he brings out a much different dimension, right? Because he reminds us that each one of those um, Gospels was essentially a letter, right, that was written to a certain community of people who are going through um, a certain thing. And the one that we focused on a little bit heavier was Mark, because uh, that's what we're studying on the blog right now um, this fall, and also our small group is studying, is the Gospel of Mark. And if you go back to like the second um, blog entry on whatifproject.net, uh, I gave some of the background and the context of the book of Mark, which I got from uh, Dr. Shia's book, Heart and Mind. And it talks all about how the letter was written um, to the Jewish Christians who were living in Rome um, under the reign of Emperor Nero, who just committed a mass genocide against the uh, Christian Jewish Christian community because he was blaming them uh, for starting the fire that burned Rome to the ground. And so Mark writes this gospel to the believers who are left there um, as a means of encouraging them uh, through this time of suffering. And when you read that, when you read the book through that lens, right, it just brings on an entirely different meaning. And I just love that uh, Dr. Shia brings that out for us. Um, if you are listening to this episode, um, like right when it comes out, I'm talking like the first week that it comes out, um, because this will be obviously on iTunes for some time to come. But if you're listening to it like right off the bat uh, this week when it came out, uh, I'm giving away a copy of Dr. Alexander Shia's book, Heart and Mind, um, on whatifproject.net. And if you go to uh, the blog post for this week and you go check out the What If Project Facebook page, uh, there will be some instructions there about how you can get your name entered um, into the mix and how you can even get your name entered into the mix 
multiple times. So there's a greater chance uh, of you winning the book. So um, do that. Go check that out. I hope that you win so you can get your hands on this book. Uh, But even if you don't win, it would be well worth the investment of your money and your time to sit down and read it. Uh, I'm about halfway through. It's an easy read. It's a long book. Uh, but it's not like difficult reading. You can read it and easily understand exactly what's going on, exactly what he's talking about. Um, so you would do very well to pick up this book and use it as a companion um, as you read through uh, the Gospels on your own time. So anyway, um, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you so much uh, for tuning into this episode. Hope it encouraged you and challenged you as much as it did for me. And I will see you next week. Bye-bye.